You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I sit down with Ryan Murdoch to talk about his journey into real estate investing through property management, which eventually led into a focus on mobile home parks. Ryan started his real estate career as an agent, then transitioned to investing and property management, specializing in multifamily residential investments in Maine, as well as mobile home parks. He is now vice president of acquisitions at Open Door Capital. We've had John Fedro and Tristan Thomas on the show over the last month or two to talk about the ins and outs of mobile home investing. It's a great way for beginners to start in real estate with low money down. This time, Ryan shares his experience with investing in mobile home parks themselves, which can also be highly profitable. Ryan and I are both very active on Instagram, so be sure to connect with us both. My username is the Robert Leonard. That's the Robert Leonard, and Ryan is at Ryan period Murdoch twenty one. I post new content almost every day in an attempt to make social media an educational resource rather than something that just wastes your time. And I really enjoy connecting with you all and hearing from you guys. So without further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Ryan Murdoch. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Ryan Murdoch. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Hey, Robert. Thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it. For those listening that may not know who you are, walk us through your story and how you got to where you are today. I'll try to go through the, the quick version. There's a lot to unpack, so feel free to circle back to any of it that you want. But I started in uh, real estate investing around 2007, 2008. Started just by buying small duplexes and, and house hacked the first couple of them. So I, I lived on one side, rented out the other. Built that into a small portfolio of small multifamily properties. And at the same time, also started my own property management business. I kind of had the mindset where if I'm married to a couple rental properties uh, and I've got to have systems in place to deal with them and uh, you know, 24-7 availability, I might as well start managing them for other people as well, try to make a little extra money. So I, I built my property management company, uh, company to about 200 or so units. And then at the, about the four or five year mark, I, for a variety of reasons, merged with a larger property management company in my area who had essentially better system set up. They had all the strengths that I was lacking, whereas I was pretty much a one-man band with my property management company with no breaks ever. It was a seven-day-a-week operation for, for that five years. I really needed to change. So I went to work with this other property management company. They hired me full-time. They were happy because I pretty much showed up self-funded because I had a significant book of business. So I went to work for them where they had administrative help, full-time handyman, and all the stuff that I was lacking. And they were pretty happy to pay me because I had a lot of I had a lot of value to their company, but I showed up self funded because I had that sort of business that I brought with. So uh, worked for them for about five years. Uh, continued to grow my my real estate portfolio to the point where it was then big enough so that I could quit my my day job with them and then survive solely off my my rental portfolio. So I left the, left that company, went back to just self managing my own units, and then started doing some consulting for small multifamily, some mobile home park owners. Ended up getting hooked up with Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets. He was looking for his first mobile home park, and I, I found a deal that worked for him. Uh, that was local to me in Bangor, Maine, just outside of Bangor, Maine. We bought that, and uh, that was just over two years ago now. And that was a pretty significant turnaround project, and we, we were able to, to get that park turned around, infill a lot of vacancies, 
renovate some existing vacant homes. And, and that project has done pretty well. That quickly evolved into me doing some other work for Brandon and eventually moving out to Maui, where he lives. I moved out here about a year and a half ago uh, to tackle some other projects, primarily Open Door Capital, which is, which is Brandon's uh, mobile home park acquisition company. So we've been full speed ahead at that project for about the past year or so now. We've closed on, I think, about $15 million in mobile home parks in the past six or seven months, and we're targeting $50 million by the end of this year. So it's been a, been a pretty meteoric rise of open-door capital, which has been a lot of fun. Started out with just me and Brandon, and then we've, we've since hired some other team members who are just awesome at what they do and a lot of fun to work with. And then also, as, as about my part-time side hustle, I also work for Bigger Pockets, uh, helping Brandon out with his Bigger Pockets video content and whatever else I can assist with. Yeah, we actually had Tristan Thomas from the Open Door Capital team also on the oh, podcast. Oh, all yeah, right. so we're, right. we're familiar so with the whole story. Yeah, yeah. His, his story is way better than mine. So yeah. Well, you, I think you both have interesting stories, but yeah, yeah. we also had him on, and I want to talk about how you got connected with Brandon because I, I remember hearing that story, and I thought it was it was interesting and inspiring, and also educational. But before we get to that, I want to talk about your property management business because I have a lot of people that actually ask me about that. They Say you know I'm I'm going to be start starting to buy a bunch of rental units. Should I consider starting my own property management business? And I don't necessarily have the best answer to give that to them because I've never done it, so I I don't know. My inclination is that it's very low margin with a lot of work, so that's kind of my opinion. But again, I've I've never done it, so I'd be love to hear a little bit more from you about what that was like owning that type of business, what your margins were like, and just overall what the process was like. It's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, I went into it without really knowing anything about anything property related. So I, it wasn't really like it was it was tough to to pitch my services because I had really no experience outside of my own duplex, but it certainly fast-tracked my level of experience in real estate whereas, you know, say you're managing your own duplex for for 5 years and that's the only experience you have. When I realized I was managing a couple hundred units or then went to work for the other company we were collectively managing nearly a couple thousand the rate at which the experience level builds is exponential. I mean, I'd, be, I'd get experience from other people's property situations. For example, I was in eviction hearings every week, whether I had one personally or I was there representing maybe a property that we had taken over that was full of bad tenants. So I, I got to see a lot of things, just experience things at a higher rate than I would have on my own. So it made me definitely a better property manager. But as far as starting out, I see a lot of people that just want to, hey, I'm going to become a property manager. And there's just so much to learn. And it can be so stressful and the legal implications if you do things wrong, especially now with all the fair housing and discrimination laws, like you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. Even if you're not, a lot of the people that get in trouble for discrimination are not, they're not, they don't even realize they're discriminating. It's not like blatant, I'm discriminating against a certain race or color. Just some of the things that they say or just some things that could be interpreted wrong or, you know, there's just so many ways to get in trouble that you really, you need to be careful. You need to be aware of the, of the risks and be ready to, to respond to any of the accusations or, or any of the problems. The other thing that I found is that when, you, when you're managing properties for yourself, so if you have your own rental units, tenant calls with a maintenance issue and you don't pick up the phone or drop the ball on something or you know, you're out of town for the weekend, something doesn't get addressed that should be addressed. The only one you really have the answer to is, is you and your tenant. But when other property owners are paying they were paying me for property management service. I couldn't use that excuse like, hey, I was out of town last night. I didn't, I didn't get that call about the toilet leaking all over the place because they're paying me to be that guy so that they can be, go away for the weekend. So it's a different level of responsibility 
from just managing your own units. Now, all of a sudden, you're dealing with somebody else's units and they're relying on, on you as a property manager to always be there, have the right answer. And I didn't always have the right answer. Like early on, I made some mistakes and just the trial and error method is, is a very hard way to learn. So I would caution anybody that just wants to you know, throw out a sign that they're in the property management business. Be careful. If you can partner with somebody that has some more experience or go to work, maybe go to work for a, for a bigger, more established property management company, kind of learn the ropes. And then if you want to strike out on your own, go for it. But I would definitely caution anybody against just jumping in. It's also not easy to learn on someone else's dime or make those mistakes with someone else's properties. No, no. And and honestly, sometimes property owners can be more difficult to deal with than than tenants. I mean, we've all had bad tenants and it only, you know, you can have hundred good tenants and it only takes one to just boil your blood, keep you up at night over some crazy problem. But I've certainly dealt with my fair share of landlord clients who were a pain in the butt to deal with. But you know, at the time, I, you know, especially early on, I needed the business. So I had, to, I had to tolerate, I had to pacify them and I had to put up with it. And it got to the point eventually where I had enough business that I could be selective. So if somebody was being a real pain, I could just, I could either not take them on as a client or maybe tell them that we needed to part ways and they needed to find somebody else. But early on when I was starting out, I needed all the money I could get to keep my operation afloat. So people, people a lot of times don't take that in consideration too. That there's, there's certainly tenant relations, but there's also property owner relations that's vital if you're going to maintain a property manager. What did the margins look like on this type of business? They're all over the place. I mean, typically out of the box, management fee was nine to ten percent for a single family home. You know, if, if there was an owner that had a significant number of rental units, that percentage went down. I, I don't know exactly what my profit margin was. My my overhead was low because I was pretty much just operating either out of my house. I got to the point where I had a small office that I was renting, but I didn't have any employees. I didn't have any real equipment. It was just me. So my margin was probably pretty good. But I, my hourly rate, I'm sure, was two bucks an hour. I mean, it just really, really was a it was it was it was a lot of hours for for not a lot on a lot of cash. Sir, so were you subcontracting out the maintenance of all the units that you had? It depended what it was. The light maintenance, a lot of times, I would do it myself. If there was any heavy lifting, and especially if it required a licensed contractor, electrician, plumber. HVAC tech, any of that kind of stuff, then I, then I would subcontract it. And I had a pretty good network of contractors and guys that I worked with, but still everything was going through my phone personally when I was on my own. So, you know, there were days where I had 80 or 90 phone calls in or out on my cell phone and not, not necessarily crazy stuff, just, just like normal course of business. So it was just nonstop. I was doing all the leasing myself. I was doing all the rent collections and, and accounting and, and everything myself. So uh, even when things went well, it was still very long days every day. Yeah, that's definitely not a passive income source in real estate. No, that's for sure. No, it, no, it, cer- it certainly was not. So maybe if somebody did want to go into it, just I would still say go to work for another bigger company or partner with somebody with more experience. But maybe just take on a few units at once. You know, not scale it as quickly as I did. I mean, looking back, I should have definitely hired more people earlier on to to alleviate some of my burden. But at the time, and I guess it's still true now. I just have a hard time delegating stuff a lot of times. So I'd rather just dive in and do it myself than to train somebody else, which isn't always a great path to take. But looking back, I, I do things a lot differently, but the way it played out. Well, it got you to where you are today. So I don't think it could be all, uh, all bad. That's for yeah, sure. I learned a ton. I learned a ton. So I, you want to talk about things not to do. I've got, you know, <laughs> I found something off me. I'll tell you the, all the wrong ways to do it. If you're lucky, I might know the right way to do it. Yeah. So I want to talk about how you went from doing what you were doing, living in a small town in Maine, to now working with Brandon Turner, like you said, on all the different projects you guys have going on. How and why has it been so important for you to have a mentor in the real estate space? Well, I mean, I guess it all you could trace it back to 
around, was it 2015 or so when I found Bigger Pockets? I mean, I had been investing and managing real estate for, for seven or eight years at that point. I was, I was fairly experienced, but when I found the, the Bigger Pockets podcast, and that kind of opened my, my eyes to all the other podcasts that are online, like there's a ton of stuff out there that I had no idea. And, and listening to all these podcasts, it was made me realize that I knew a lot about my specific niche of real estate investing, but there was a whole, whole lot more going on up there than, than I was aware of. So just listening to different investors uh, with different strategies, you know, as far as syndication and funds and wholesaling and subject to and all this stuff that I had never done or didn't know anything about really opened my eyes that it was a big world out there. And that there's a lot more things that, that, that I could be doing. It was nice that I had a lot of hands-on experience from, from my own stuff, you know, where I, I had the kind of the foundational property management and I understood real estate investing, but to then hear all these kind of different facets of, of real estate and what could be done really just fast tracked me. So I, I think it's very important to surround yourself with, with people, go to, go to meetups, go, you know, listen to podcasts, go online, like just stay engaged with other investors, whether it's in your immediate community or nationwide, worldwide. Everybody pretty much has, has done whatever you're trying to do at one point in time. So there's no need to, to reinvent the wheel. Lean on other resources and other people that, that, that have done it. How do you get connected with a mentor? How can someone who's listening to the show today that's new to real estate, how can they try to find a mentor and be successful at it? That's tough. That's the advice I could give for that would be to just go to, to meetups and just form relationships with people face-to-face. It's tough if you just see somebody online or you send them an email and, hey, you know, and I get these questions. I know Brandon gets just bombarded with them. Hey, will you be my mentor? Like, well, no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm busy, you know? I mean, I don't, have, I don't have the time to take somebody by the hand and train them as, as, as much as I'd like to. It just, I don't have enough bandwidth to do it. So it's, it's pretty important that if somebody's looking for a mentor, that they have some sort of value to bring to that person, which we get those requests too. It's like, I'll get an email or a call from somebody who's very well-intentioned, but they're like, hey, uh, what can I do to add value to your life? Like now, you, I still don't know. Like now you're putting the burden on me to find something for you to do. And then I have to, I have to walk you through that. So what I found is people that, that go, to, go to meetups tend to just form friendly relationships with the other investors at that meetup and get to know them sort of on, on a personal level. And from there, maybe we'll pick up on something that that mentor is lacking or here maybe complaining about something and the person says, oh, maybe I, maybe I can do something to, to alleviate that. Even if there are no meetups in your area, I know the one that, that I first went to in, in Bangor, Maine was hosted by a guy who didn't have any real estate and had very little real estate experience, but he was just looking for connections, looking to, to build the network, potentially looking for mentors. So he just, he just decided he was going to host a meetup and he got a pretty good turnout. And that meetup still continues monthly. It's, it's grown quite a bit. And I know as a result of that, he's been able to certainly broaden his, his own knowledge. He's found some, he's made some great contacts in the area. He's been able to buy quite a few properties as a result of that, either through the help of, of friends now that he has at that meetup or properties that were being sold. Very important that you, that you, that you stay engaged and you, you become friendly and personable with people. It's hard just to right out of the gate, like cold call somebody and ask, hey, will you be my mentor? Like it just, it, it, it doesn't work that way. You've got, you've got to build that relationship first before you can really start asking those questions. Is that how you were able to get connected with Brandon Turner? So while I was staying engaged, it was when he was looking for his first mobile home park, he had 1031 money from an apartment complex he was selling. I had been on the Bigger Pockets podcast like six months or so before he was looking and was on the show, but really didn't form any sort of friendship or, or relationship with him. But when he started banging the drum that he was looking for this mobile home park, around the same time he was speaking at a, at a meetup in New York, fairly close to me at the time. It was like a Wednesday afternoon. So I just randomly 
So that'd be kind of cool. Let me, let me, let me jump on a plane. I'll fly down to the, to the meetup and, and, you know, get to meet Brandon and hear what he has to say. So it was a great meetup. He gave his presentation. I, you know, I met him and shook his hand and said something stupid and awkward. Like 30 seconds later, just kind of disappeared to the back of the room. But part of his presentation was this ongoing search for a mobile home park. He had just sold his, his 1031 property. The, the clock was ticking. He needed to find something. And he kept hammering the same thing, which he had been saying on the, on the show was, uh, had to be 50 lots or greater, public water, public sewer. And I'm standing in the room thinking, okay, yeah, we, we, we've heard that all before. That's cool. And never dawned on me that, that I would play any part of it. So next day I went home and it was a few days later at the local meetup that I was just telling you about. We're sitting in this guy's living room and one of the other investors pipes up. He says, Hey, I've got this mobile home park nearby. I'm looking to sell it. He says, 50 lots, public water, public sewer. And my ears kind of perked up and I'm still thinking like, there's no way that Brandon Turner is going to want to buy a park anywhere near Bangor, Maine. But I, I said to the other investor, I said, Ed, just send me the numbers on it if you would. So he did. And I sent them to Brandon and, and long story short, he ended up liking the deal, came out to Bangor. We did some due diligence and a couple months later, we closed on it. But so that's kind of how I got into the fold of working with Brandon. He brought the money. I was the boots on the ground guy. But all of that was because I, I stayed engaged. You know, if I hadn't been listening to podcasts and, and looking at web content related to real estate, and if I hadn't just randomly said, oh, I'm going to fly down to you know the New York and attend a meetup just outside of my market because I want to see what else is going on. And if I hadn't gone to my local meetup and hadn't said, hey, you know, send me the numbers and kind of, hey, throw that Hail Mary pass. So I'm going to send these to Brandon and see what happens. Like all of those things had to happen for any of it to happen. And it was nothing smart or, you know, overly intelligent on my part. It was just staying engaged. Just keep putting yourself out there. So why mobile home parks? What do you guys like about them? There's a lot of things we like about mobile home parks. Probably my favorite thing about mobile home parks is they, they tend to be more low to middle income housing. What that means to me is that they tend to be more recession resistant. And I'm not going to say recession proof because I wouldn't use that term for, for anything. I know back I was around in the 2007, 2008 crash and my lower income rentals actually did better during that recession than certainly the higher end stuff and, and certainly better than they were doing before that. Seems like the, the high end rentals and the high end new construction stuff that gets hit the biggest in a recession. Everything kind of gets crammed down to the, to the next lowest level. And I know around 2008, 2009, my, my lower income apartment rentals actually increased. The rent went up 25 or 50 or 75 bucks because because demand was greater. So mobile home parks sort of fit that same niche. And, and there's some very nice mobile home parks. Don't, don't get me wrong. And there's other reasons that I like them, but a majority of them are that kind of cater that like comparable to the C class, maybe B minus apartment tenant. So there's there's always demand for that regardless regardless of the economy. The other thing is the the value add potential for mobile home parks is different than than any other asset class. So for example, if you want to buy an apartment building and value add, typically the only way to do that is you can, you can raise rents. That's that's certainly there, but is renovating the apartment. So you're 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 going in, you got in the apartments, you're you're improving the finishes, and you're then re-renting and raising the rent and improving the NOI, which improves the, the value of the building. With mobile home parks, we're able to buy them so that not only do they cash flow right out of the gate, like on day one, they they will sustain themselves, but we typically buy them with a fair amount of vacancy, so twenty to thirty percent vacant lot. We're able to force some value-add appreciation, not through going in and, and renovating existing homes, although sometimes we do that. The real appreciation is found through filling the vacancies. So if we've got a 100-lot park and, and 20 of those lots are, are vacant, just through infill, which usually is a net cost to us of nothing, either we have tenants who will bring their own homes in and set them up on vacant lots, or we'll buy homes, bring them in, set them up, renovate them and then sell them back off. Even if we just break even on the sale of, of that home that we brought in, 
we're collecting lot rent on a on a lot that otherwise was not in service. So you're you're increasing your bottom line right there. And if you do that through twenty or thirty percent of the park, you you've got significant value right there. So those two reasons, the kind of recession resistant and the way we go about adding value are my, my two definitely favorite aspects of the loan parks. Did you know about those aspects of it going into it or were those things that you kind of learned as you started to do them? It's funny because I had managed mobile home parks throughout my 10 years of uh, property management. But so I was down in the trenches of just nasty, dirty, like just disgusting apartment and mobile home park property management. So I knew that end of it. I was an investor at the time, but I never really gave a whole lot of thought to investing in a mobile home park. I mean, I still kind of laughed at them and said, this is crazy. I mean, it's good management income, but I can't imagine, you know, I don't want ever, I never even really considered owning, owning one until... You know, Brandon started talking about it, and then I found that deal, and then I really kind of put a different set of glasses on and said, "Hey, wait a minute! As an investor, these things really do have potential." And I already had the operational, the management, the sort of the infill knowledge, the, the nuts and bolts of the actual running of the park. But then to look at it as, at, from a different angle as, as an investor really got really got me excited. So I was kind of like, I consider myself now fairly well rounded because I spent ten years down in the trenches of management, and now I'm on the other side doing the investing. No matter how I look at it, they still just seem like a great asset class. Are mobile home parks a type of investment that should be left to experts or experienced investors, or are they something that newer investors could get involved with as well? Newer investor could certainly start investing in mobile home parks, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Sort of the way that you know I'm hesitant about a new investor starting a property management company. There's just a there's a lot to it, and usually a park is larger than a newbie investor would want to take on. So you know, the, the general evolution of a, of a real estate investor is you buy something small, single family home or a duplex or a triplex. And, you know, you can, most investors can weather the storm if they make some financial mistakes. Chances are they still have a day job. Maybe they have some other income. So, you know, if you screw up and break something or, or something is mismanaged and, and, and you lose out, chances are you can cover that mistake with your, with your day job income. Once you start looking at, at parks, now you're talking about just, it's a much bigger acquisition where there's a lot more money involved. So if something should go wrong, chances are it's a much more costly mistake. And you're going to a lot of times have a lot harder time covering that cost with your, with your other income, whatever that is from, from your day job. Yes, there are smaller parks, but you know, even an 8, 10, 12 lot park, you got a significant water line, sewer line break, or if something happens and the entire park goes empty. Like that's, that, that's a pretty heavy burden for a newbie to take on. So again, I would seriously suggest that anybody that wants to get into mobile home park investing, partner with somebody on your first deal to, to learn the ropes. It truly is new to you if you have no experience managing them or doing anything else with them. Partner with somebody that, that has some experience, kind of show you the ropes, whether you're investing financially or maybe you have no money in it, but you're doing some boots on the ground, some volunteer management, some volunteer maintenance stuff just to, just to learn about mobile home parks. You're going to save yourself a, a ton of, of money and headache down the line just because you've got somebody else to guide you through things that you don't know. For someone who might have the money or experience or can raise the money from someone else, but they have experience investing in real estate, just not maybe mobile home parks, what are some of the most important things for them to know about investing in mobile home parks if they're interested in starting there? So mobile home parks have some significant differences from apartment complexes. And a lot of it's just the analysis and underwriting of the initial deal. Apartment complexes are, are generally pretty easy to underwrite. I mean, I can look at an apartment complex, Brandon can look at an apartment complex, you probably can. And within five minutes and quick analysis back of the napkin, you can determine a value pretty close. And I know I don't want to just totally generalize that because I know there are some unique situations where stuff, there's some long-term plays and it gets complex. But overall, apartment and, and single-family home underwriting is 
pretty straightforward. Mobile home parks have a lot more variables. So when we, especially when we buy these now, it's you're looking at the number of lots, how many of the homes are, are tenant-owned homes, how many are park-owned homes, and then what is that ratio? How does that affect your ability to get financing? How many vacant lots are there? And then what's your plan to fill the vacant lots? Are you going to wait for tenants to bring their own in? Do you need the capital to outlay to buy your own mobile homes, fill those lots, and sell the homes off? And then what's that? How long is that going to take? What you know, you're going to break even? You're going to profit? You're going to lose money? So there's a ton of different variables, and each of them fit together differently with other ones. So you, it's not nearly as straightforward as okay, I've got a you know I've got a 10 unit apartment complex, and four of the units are vacant. I know I'm going to spend three grand at each one to get them fixed up, and that's what they're going to rent for. With mobile home parks, the, the the number of variables and the way you handle them can drastically affect your whether whether the project works or, or whether it doesn't. So there's a lot of ways you can go right, and there's a lot of ways you can go wrong. And if you don't have any experience, even if you're an experienced real estate investor, I would suggest that you definitely want somebody that has physical hands-on mobile home park experience to, to guide you through the underwriting and then you know, what your options are for running and maintaining the park. I know you have a strict criteria for the types of mobile home parks that you're willing to buy. What are those criteria and why did you choose them? So right now, our, our, our criteria is we were looking at things that we're looking at parks that are at least 100 lots. And that's strictly from just an operational standpoint. Everybody on the team is working remotely. So Brandon and I are in Hawaii. A couple of guys are in Atlanta. We've got Brian and Trisha up in New York. So we're all over the place. So typically how we operate these parks is there will be an on-site park manager lives in the park, but their capabilities are usually pretty limited, You know, passing out notices, maybe collecting rent. They sometimes will do maintenance or maybe there's an on-site maintenance guy, but anything above and beyond that, they're just not capable of doing. So they all report to our main management company, which is run by Brian Murray and his wife, Trisha. So operationally to, to manage anything smaller than a hundred lots remotely just doesn't make any sense. Like just the operational efficiency is too great. So we need at least a hundred lots. And then the other criteria is we want public water and, and public sewer. We don't want to deal with wells and water testing and everything that goes along with that. And we don't want to deal with septic tanks and leach fields and, and certainly not septic lagoons. Again, it's just operationally easier for us. And we have found that so far those criteria have not slowed us down from finding any good deals. I'm sure there's good deals out there and good opportunities with smaller parks that have wells and septics. It's just not for us. Everything you just talked about was for the park itself and not really the market that the park is in. So what do you look for in the market? As far as the market, we're looking for population trends. So our this is a little bit squishy, but generally we, we say we want at least 100,000 people within a 10-mile radius of the park. And that's, you know, and that would be the same like for apartments generally is you want, you get into too small of a market, you have trouble finding tenants, you have trouble finding vendors, you have trouble finding contractors, like there's just, there's just not enough going on. So we want at least 100,000 people within 10 miles. More is, is certainly better. And we want to, we want to see a stable or ideally increasing population. We try to avoid significantly decreasing populations, even if the population size is greater than, than our minimum. If there's a, just a declining trend, it, that's not a good sign. So we want, we want stable population and better yet, increasing population. Is that the really only thing you're looking for in a market? That's that's the main thing. Employers certainly play into that too. So we like to see a diverse line of employers. So if it's just a, the entire region is supported by one processing plant or even sometimes, I mean, military is usually pretty safe, but you know, if it's just, if it's a town that's supported solely by one single military base or, or one, one employer that could just shut their doors and change the entire dynamic of the market, that's a problem. We'd much rather see four or five or six or more steady employers. So if one, one goes away, the sky doesn't fall. That's really it in a market. 
You don't look much at crime. We do from, yeah, we do look at crime because that tends to affect the debt that we can take. So the, the lenders are concerned about the crime, especially in the park itself, where from an operational standpoint, I'm not as concerned because I can take a rough park and we can, we can fix it up and make it nice. But right out of the gate, if you've got a park with high crime rate, the, the lenders do not like that. And you're either, they're either going to pass on it entirely or your debt terms are not going to be as favorable. One other thing I'll either look at is sometimes the political climate. So some states are easier to operate than others. So New York, California, uh, we haven't completely ruled them out, but they're tougher to operate than, say, Texas or you know somewhere else in the Midwest. So pretty much the park size, the utilities, and population are our hard and fast criteria. Everything else we take into some sort of consideration. So if it doesn't check every single box, but it checks us four or five of them, then will usually proceed. But it's, it's, a collective, it's a collective look at, at all of those factors to figure out the something that we want. It wasn't always like that. A year ago, we were looking at stuff like 40 or 50 lots and above, and we were looking at private utilities. And what happened is we were just completely overwhelmed as a team with things to look at because pretty much every park that was for sale anywhere, because our criteria, our, our net was too broad, and we, we just couldn't even keep up with underwriting, couldn't keep up with analysis, didn't know what we wanted. So we said, all right, time out. We've got to, we've got to tighten these criteria down quite a bit. And just by doing that, has streamlined our efficiency in a huge way, just by weeding out all the smaller stuff and, and the private utilities. Now we know that the parks we're actually spending time looking at are ones that we would actually want to own instead of ones that we just knew we had no business in. So how are you able to find not only one or two, but quite a few different mobile home parks to purchase in a real estate market overall that I think a lot of people are considering to be near its end and overvalued? We're recording this on March 25th, which we're going through some economic turbulence now. But up until now, I know you guys have been making a lot of acquisitions in a market that was relatively hot. So how were you able to do that? Like everything else, it's been very competitive. Where we stand out is we've got a very broad reach in terms of... I'll give all the credit here to Brandon Turner's popularity and his platform and his reach. And it's still boggles my mind that he'll put he'll just put an Instagram post out there whether we we're raising money or we need talent or you know we're hiring or, or we're looking for parks and just from his Instagram post we'll get flooded with quality responses like we've been able to find people and find money that I wouldn't have found on my own like 10 years without banging on doors so he's got a he's got a very broad reach through social media through the bigger pockets podcast through all the stuff that he does so that has certainly helped us find deals it's also given us a, a, a bit of a leg up in terms of People will bring stuff to him, whether it's deals or, or investor funds, because they, they know him, whether they really, truly know him on a personal basis, or they've just been listening to his podcast for you know, the, many years, and they, they feel like they know him. There's a, there's a level of trust there. So people will bring us deals. People will bring us money. But that's, that, that's not all. But once we have those, we've got to be able to actually act and perform on them. So with mobile home parks, we, we feel that... I mean, you had Tristan Thomas on your show. He's our, he's our dedicated infill specialist. That's all he does is focus on, on infilling vacant lots at our parks. And that's really the, the secret sauce, so to speak, of, of making these parks work, getting them turned around, and getting the returns that we want, uh, is we can aggressively go in and fill vacant lots and drive the value of the park up. And I think a lot of people, a lot of other investors can't do it as well as we do. And I'm not saying all of them, some of them, some are very good at it, but a lot of our competition will just underwrite parks kind of where they are now and maybe have a much longer projected timeframe for infill. But we've got our infill system really dialed in, which makes a huge difference in when we're projecting our returns and what the overall timeline is for the park to get it refinanced or to get it sold or to get, get returns from where they are now, which is, which is not sufficient to, hey, you know, within six or eight months, we can have this thing actually performing. So in this market, we've got to do every little thing that we can to gain an advantage and, and all of those things add up. 
and so far have, have allowed us to continue buying. I mean, there's certainly parts out there that we wanted bad and just couldn't quite get there. And I'm still scratching my head on how a lot of whoever beat us got there. But that's, I guess that's for them to figure out. We've got to be pretty strict on, on what our investor returns are and what our requirements are. We've got to stick to that. As tempting as it is to say, eh, we'll just offer a little bit more. We can't do it, but we've, we've still been able to keep the, the, the deal flow by point full. What resources or tools are you using to actually find these parks? I know you said a lot of people are probably bringing them to Brandon just given his network, but is there an MLS? Is there a, like a LoopNet or anything like that for mobile home parks? Not really. I mean, there's a couple websites, Crexy and LoopNet, but usually, as you know, usually by the time anything hits, loop, hits LoopNet, that's where they go to die. So really, the, the, it's relationship building. So we try and reach out, maintain relationships with every national mobile home broker that we can. That's a pretty small community overall. So they pretty much all know who we are at this point. You know, and, we, and we've got a decent track record. It was a little tougher when we started. All of us on the Open Door Capital team have years and years of experience on our own. But in its current form, we were new as Open Door Capital and really didn't have a track record to say, hey, we've closed on a bunch of stuff. So brokers, sellers, for good reason, I guess, were leery that, hey, can these guys actually, can they perform? Can they close on these things? And now that we're showing that, that we can, we're getting taken a lot more seriously. We're getting brokers that are bringing deals to us. I'm not going to say exclusively, but you know, we're getting a, a sooner look at, at some of this stuff than we may have otherwise. We also just launched, uh, I'll, I'll do a plug for this, bringbrandinadeal.com, where anybody who brings us a off-market lead, we don't need a contract. We just need an introduction to the owner. If we end up closing on that park, we'll give that person 50 grand for making the introduction to the seller. So every which way we can. I mean, we're, we're just trying to, we want everybody to know who we are, everybody to know what we're looking for. And that's, I mean, that's advice I'd give a, a newbie. If you're looking for a duplex or a triplex or whatever it is, make sure everybody that you come in contact with knows what you're looking for. Don't be obnoxious about it. But if people don't know what you want, they're not they're not going to know that, that they're not going to bring anything to you. Going back to that kind of stay engaged, make sure everybody knows what you want. Are you guys reaching out to more mom and pop type owners of mobile home parks, or are they usually owning smaller parks that aren't necessarily meeting your criteria? We would love to buy from mom and pops, and that's still kind of the that's the target. What we found though is the I mean, there's there's only what forty thousand mobile home parks in the country, give or take. So, and then because they've been so popular in recent years, the bigger ones, the ones hundred plus lots, a lot of the mom and pop ones have already been sold off. So that opportunity is dwindling to go right to mom and pop. They're still out there, but but not as much. But we just closed on one a couple weeks ago that another national operator had purchased from a mom and pop. They bought it four or five years ago for pennies on the dollar versus today's pricing, but it was fairly big. I think there was 50% occupancy when they bought it. And then they were able to do some infill. I think they brought it to about 65 or 70% occupancy. So they, they added value. They spiffed it up. It was a nice park. And, and because of that, they were able to sell it at a, at a tidy profit. But we came in, we looked at it and said, hey, you know, this is a nice park and there's still still 20 to 30% vacancy. We've There's a lot of meat on the bone here for us still. Even paying the price that gave them a nice profit, we were able to take that park and we, we think we can bring it to the finish line and add, add even more value to it. Even though we're not buying directly from mom and pop, some of it's that kind of second tier mom and pop. The, the guys that bought it from mom and pop are now selling them and there's still some, still some good deals to be found there. I think if you're targeting mom and pop, there's still, I think, a lot more opportunity in the you know that 20 to 50 lot arena for the, the smaller parks, which is still some great opportunity for maybe a local operator, somebody that's got a park or two in their kind of their their hometown that they're looking at. Those those could be great opportunities for people. And I think there's still a lot more mom and pop sellers of that size park than, than some of the bigger stuff. How about actually investing in the mobile homes themselves? So not just not the park necessarily that all the mobile homes are in, but how about for an individual investor that might be interested in investing in the actual mobile homes? Is there a potential strategy there as whether it be flips or rentals or 
anything along those lines? There's great opportunity there, especially if you're, you know, that, that might be a good place to start out if somebody doesn't have a lot of experience and it certainly doesn't take a lot of money to just buy, buy a single mobile home. That's what you're asking, right? Like just to buy, yeah, to buy one single mobile home. And that's if you, I haven't listened to your show with Tristan, but I'm sure he talked about that. That's where he got his start was just buying homes, not, not in a park that he owned because he didn't have any at the time, but just, just going into somebody else's park, buying a dilapidated old home for whatever, $1,000, $2,000, sometimes even less. You know, you put three or four grand and you fix it up and you could turn around and sell that either for cash for a pretty nice profit. I mean, he may have five or six grand into a home. He's able to turn around and sell for 10 or 15, maybe 20 grand on a good day or work out some sort of payment plan where he gets a down payment and then they make payments on it for, for a period of months. So for, for a little bit of cash out of pocket, it can be a really good return. He was able to string, I don't know what his actual financial freedom number was, but he was able to, you know, you string 10 or 12 or 15 of those, those little deals together and they're all producing, you know, monthly payments or three or 400 bucks like that. That's real money. So that's a great path. For an investor that doesn't have maybe the the financial ability to either pay cash for an actual apartment building, or maybe you can't get financing for whatever reason, like start out and, and you know spend a couple grand on, on a mobile home, go in, fix it up yourself, kind of learn the ropes of do it yourself repair. Uh, that, that, that's a great place to get started. So I'm curious to hear from the side of a mobile home park owner for someone who is going to do what you just said, and maybe they want to fix it up a little bit and rent it out, and they want to put it in a park. What does that process look like from the side of someone who owns the park? How do you think about people that come to you and want to put mobile homes in your parks? It can definitely be a win-win relationship. So if I'm a park owner and I've got a vacant lot, or maybe the lot has a home on it, but the home's just vacant, like my, my, the only thing I truly care about is getting that lot rent coming in. So, I mean, I shouldn't say it's the only thing I care about, obviously, the, the quality of the park and the quality of the tenant, but my primary goal is to get that lot rent active. So if somebody comes in, like I know I'll use Tristan again for an example. When he went into a park, he would take an old disgusting home and it wasn't generating any revenue. And he'd go to the park owner and say, hey, I'm going to come in. I'm going to fix this up. I'm going to get it rented. I'm going to generate some some lot rent. And I think he even went so far. And, and if he didn't, I would recommend this. But if you're going to have a tenant, either a rental tenant in your home or you're doing some sort of installment sale, I would guarantee to the park that like, hey, if the tenant doesn't cover the lot rent, I'm going. Like just builds confidence with the park owner that you're going to that you're going to perform. Generally, any, anybody that goes into a, in, into a home, even if it's owned by, by a separate investor, still has to go through the, the park's approval process and their screening process. So that, you know, they're doing typically credit checks and background checks to, to ensure that you've got somebody reasonable and decent going in, into, the, into the home. But from a park owner's perspective, so anybody that's, gonna, that's either going to bring a home in and fill my vacant lot or take a dilapidated empty home and make it nice and, and get it so we can put a high-functioning tenant in there, I'm all for it. Do park owners usually want to own the buildings? Because I know you just mentioned that you're really just mostly concerned with that lot rent. So it sounds like owning the actual mobile homes themselves might be more of a headache than the income is worth when you own 100 units that are, or 100 slabs or spots or units that are generating lot rent. So are you really just trying to have tenant owned properties in your parks so that you can just collect the lot rent? That's our goal. And that's the goal of most of the larger operators is to just get to the point where it's lot rent only. So essentially, you just have a giant parking lot and the tenants own their own actual homes. And there's, there's a few different reasons for that. Primarily is it, it removes all of the sort of repair and maintenance expense and headache from a park owner's perspective. So if the tenants own their own home, they're making all their own repairs, their, their toilet gets clogged, they're plunging it. So if the doorknob falls off, they're fixing it. 
So, so it alleviates a lot of the management headache from a park owner's perspective. When, when everybody owns their own home, the only thing that we're really having to maintain is the actual infrastructure and the common areas. So the roads, the main water lines, sewer lines, that kind of stuff. But as far as the individual home maintenance, we, we don't have anything to do with that. So it makes budgeting easier. It makes staffing easier. From a lending perspective, the banks typically only like to lend on the value of the park based on the lot rent. They don't consider rental income from a home because they don't like to finance on mobile homes because they're personal property. They're not, they're not real estate. So you could be bringing in a million bucks a month on rental income from, from the actual homes and the bank is not going to account for any of that in their valuation of the park. They only want the lot rents. Generally, when we buy parks, it's very rare that we buy a park that is 100% tenant owned. Usually there's some element of park owned homes or lease option purchases or something other than straightforward lot rent. And we have, we have to account for that knowing that, Hey, you know, we're only going to be able to get financing up to a certain amount. And then what's our plan to, to offload these park owned homes? Are we going to give them to the tenant? Are we going to force them to take them? Are we going to just allow them to be renters until they move out? And at that time, then we're not going to re-rent. We're only going to sell the homes. So it kind of goes back to that. Like I was talking about the different ways to underwrite a park. There's all kinds of different variables, how you're going to deal with, with park owned rentals. Now, I know in some markets, a lot of, especially like the New England, it, it seems to be big and, and smaller parks, uh, especially ones that are self-managed. A lot of people prefer to have park-owned rentals. I know in Maine, I'm not sure how it is in New Hampshire, but the small parks, they tend to do better with park-owned rentals. And I'm not sure if it's because, you know, mom and pop do their own maintenance so they can save a couple bucks or what it is, but they, they the smaller parks tend to, tend to prefer park-owned homes. We don't like it at all. We need to do also the bigger operator. So in the cases of not owning the buildings, do you find that your returns are better by not owning them? Or could you actually squeeze out a little bit more profit if you own them, but it's so much more headache that those dollars just aren't worth it? A little bit of both. Like, yeah, we probably could do better. Actually, I don't even know if we could. It began because just the remote headaches of having to deal with all the maintenance. I think the the owner operators do better with it because they can just run over and fix something for five minutes of their time. Whereas if we have to send a handyman, it's a two hour minimum and it's a, you know, it's $120 service charge just to have anybody go look at it. The other part of it really is just the, it's the financing term. So if a significant number or a significant amount of the park's valuation is based on park owned home rental income, we can't get the LTV that we need. So we end up with way too much cash still in the deal. We need the majority of the value of the park to come from lot rent only so that we can get better finance. So I think that above anything would change it for us. Whereas that, you know, in a smaller mom and pop operator, that's not really an issue for them. We're, when we have investors to deal with and we're trying to refinance parks, we need, we need a substantial amount of value. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear that banks don't really take into consideration the mobile home units rent themselves, the rental units. Does that provide an opportunity to buy parks, right? Because if you have a park that's, say, mostly owned by the owner of the park, and so they're getting a lot of rental income from that, and maybe they have a lot of vacancy, so they're not getting a ton of lot rent, but they're covering it through the rental income. Maybe somebody who doesn't have as much capital as you guys do in your fund can't afford that, say, park because they can't get the financing, but because you guys are so well capitalized, you're able to take advantage of it? Yes, possibly. It just comes down to the decision of if we have to keep our capital tied up in any one park for any amount of time, it just limits our ability to go out and buy other parks. The more cash we have into a park limits us further on down the road. So if you have a park owner that's, that has valued their park and they're selling this thing for a million bucks and they have determined that value based on their, their NOI and that most of that NOI is a result of park rental income, the bank is going to look at that same park and they're going to discount all that park on home rental income. And they may value it like your appraisal may come in at 
at 400,000. They're only going to loan at, you know, whatever, 65 to say 80% LTV on 400,000. And the purchase price is a million bucks on that thing. Like that's a lot of cash that we would have to put down and leave in the park because the overall financing is so small. From the seller's perspective, he doesn't want to discount it because I mean, he's seeing real money in his hands. I get it. Like he's seeing this this real income from the park owned rentals. So there's a there's a big disparity there a lot of times on what the valuation of the park is because the park owner is looking at it one way. We as investors and and the lender are looking at it a different way. And we've had to pass on a lot of deals just because there was no middle there was no middle ground there. So for somebody that maybe had some cash that they were okay leaving in a deal. Yeah, there's probably great opportunity there. We much cash as we need to put into every deal, we we try to put as little as possible because it allows us to put more down on, on the next part and leverage the balance. So in those cases, the sellers don't have any wiggle room. I mean, obviously coming down from a million to four hundred thousand would be very painful for the seller, but if you guys can't buy it because of financing, then the situation's probably gonna be the same for the next person and the next person and the next person. So where does that domino end up falling and they have to just reduce the price because that's not what the banks will lend on? Well, that's why you see a lot of seller financing in the mobile home park industry is for that that exact reason is they know a, a buyer is not going to be able to get, get instituted. They're not going to be able to get bank financing on it. So the seller will a lot of times either finance the whole thing or a significant portion of it just to get around that. Not every seller is able to do that. Maybe they have debt on it. Maybe they need the cash to go do something else. But for example, the park that Brandon and I bought in Maine, uh, that seller, we put 20% down and, and that seller financed the 80% balance for 25 years fixed. So I mean, was, that was a great deal. And that was a good deal for him because he knew that that was really his only way to, to sell that park and get his price. The numbers still work for us. And then the seller, again, was able to defer some of the capital gains and he's got, he's got mailbox money that he can count on. That's why you see so much seller financing in the mobile home park. And when you do seller financing in the mobile home park space, is it typically 20% down and then you kind of negotiate the interest rate or what do the terms usually look like? It's whatever you can negotiate. <laughs> it's, it's a wild west. Well, really with any sort of owner financing, there is no like typical... Yeah. I mean, a savvy seller generally is going to want you to have some skin in the game. So there, I think the, the chances of getting 100% seller financing are pretty slim. If you, if you can negotiate it, great. But I think any seller that's been around for any amount of time is going to want to see some level of commitment. So it, it 10 to 20% down. But we were able to uh, sometimes negotiate interest only maybe for the first couple of years while we were able to do some turnaround and infill just to get us a little more leeway and keep our expenses down the first couple of years. So there's all kinds of ways to get, get creative with it, whether it's you know an escalating interest rate or interest only for a period of time while you get started. I mean, it's, it's really, it's whatever you can negotiate in anything's on the table. What has been the biggest mistake that you've made throughout your real estate investing journey? Oh boy. I think it's not <laughs> so many to choose from. I think it's not seeking out help. Like it was, it's going back to trying to do too much too soon on my own. So if I had brought in help or partnered with more experienced people early on, I would have saved myself the aggravation of making all the mistakes. Not all the mistakes, but a lot of the mistakes that I made. So yeah, no, it's kind of a wishy-washy answer. I, I don't really pinpoint it to one definite thing, but I, sh- I should have aligned myself with people smarter than me a lot earlier on. How would you recommend someone listening to the show today goes about doing that so that they don't make the same mistake? This goes back to that same thing. Stay engaged. Go to meetups. Like, put yourself out there. If there's conferences, I mean, there's conferences all over the country now. Like, you can find one close to you. And whether whether it's a local meetup or sort of a national conference, get out there. Stay engaged. Meet as many people as you can. Find out what other people are looking for. Keep your ears open. Listen for what they're struggling to accomplish. And if you're able to lend any value to what those people are looking for, and that you think that they can lend value to what you need, then that's that's a great start of a relationship. But you you don't learn any of that stuff if you just sit at home. 
get out there, stay engaged. And, and it's, I think it's nerve wracking for a lot of newbies that maybe don't have any experience and they don't have any properties to like, Hey, can I even show up at a real estate meetup? I don't, I don't know anything. I don't have anything. I, I wouldn't let that stop people. Most real estate investors that I've met, even now hanging around investors that are way more experienced than me, like real estate investors, we, we tend to like to talk about what we've done and we like to help other investors get started. I know at least for me, it's, it's because I don't want to see people make the same mistakes. Now, like I was talking about earlier, I need to balance that with like, there's only so many hours in a day. But in general, if I'm in a room with investors, especially new ones, I'll talk all day long and, and help them out any way I can. So I think that really surprised me when I started going to meetups and, and networking is kind of expected everybody to keep their secrets close to the best. And, and it was anything but that. I mean, people are very open and, and willing to share. So get out of the house, go to a meetup. Yeah, I haven't been to a ton of meetups myself. I've been to some and I, I plan to go to continue to go to more. But the ones that I have been to, they've been, I mean, everybody there has been super helpful. I found in the real estate space that just everybody, most people have been really helpful. You know, some people aren't going to be able to give you all their time, but I found that a lot of people just, whether it be across social yeah. media or in person at meetups or just various different ways that you can connect with people these days, they've just been super helpful. And that's something that I didn't necessarily expect in the real estate industry, especially from some other industries. So, other industries where nobody wants to tell anybody anything because it's all proprietary and they want to keep, you know, if they tell you, that means they can't get ahead. And, and uh, real estate investing doesn't seem to be a whole different animal. People are very open. Yeah, I found the, found the exact same thing. Ryan, I've really enjoyed our conversation about diving into all the different aspects of mobile home park investing. I'm not quite there in my portfolio yet to buy my first one. And I'm guessing probably a lot of people in the audience aren't either. But I'm sure that they're going to be interested in potentially doing one in the future. I know I am. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I think the audience is going to learn a lot. Where can everyone listening to the show today go to learn more about you and connect with you? You can learn about our whole team. You can go to our website, opendoorcapitalllc.com, or you can email me directly at ryan, R-Y-A-N, at O-D-C fund, like opendoorcapitalfund.com, Facebook and Instagram, I'm at ryan.murdoch21. I'll be sure to put links to all those different ways that you can connect with Ryan in the show notes. You guys can go connect with him if you'd like to chat further. And I'll also put links to various different things that we talked about throughout the show, other resources so you can go read further. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, man. This was a blast. Thanks for having me on. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.